1: A royal commentator shares her experience of being pranked, a Spotify executive calls Harry and Meghan Grifters, and the royals come together for the king's first birthday parade. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show to Royal Commentator Victoria Arbiter. Now, Victoria, you're here to tell us about an experience you had with some comedians or pranksters who had set up a prank um, in the days before Harry and Meghan's Oprah Winfrey interview back in March 2021. So tell us a little bit about what happened.
2: Sure. Well, Jack, I think you're very generous to call them comedians. Uh, That is not a word that I would perhaps choose based on my own experience. But in a nutshell, uh, and I appreciate for the people that are aware of this story, it feels dreadfully dull that I'm still talking about it two years later. But hopefully we can get to the reasons why I'm still talking about it two years later. I think it's a very important story that has the potential to help other people and people that I want to prevent from being similarly harmed. But in a nutshell, uh, just a couple of days prior to Harry, Megan's interview with Oprah. My agent received a request uh, from a company that the website checked out. There was, I always check out everybody that I am uh, being interviewed by. So I had a look at the website. Everything looked legitimate to me. Uh, They wanted to, and it was billed as... um, providing background. So anybody who is not in a media-related field may not know about practice of pre-records. And I appreciate it seems like a very odd concept, but they're not done to deceive or to sway an audience's opinion a certain way. Typically, they're done to provide the background filler that would then be added to the immediate commentary that is, that is delivered post-event. So I understood my role to be, okay, We've got Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah coming up. We had seen a few promos, so we knew which way it was going to go. And also, we knew that anybody who had been following the story would have a pretty good indication of the topics that would be covered. But still, when you're approaching a pre-record, you have to be very careful to lean on precedent and history, what's happened before in your own area of expertise. So I understood that my role would be to provide background. So Diana's interview in '95, Andrew's disastrous interview for Newsnight, then Prince Charles' own interview with with Dimbleby many, many moons ago. And that's what we largely focused on. But as the interview progressed, there started to be some quite uncomfortable moments. Uh, Post-interview, Archie and Josh, uh, Archie Manners, Josh Peters, the the two chaps in question, did a number of interviews in which they said they never tried to sway answers. They never tried to feed us any answers. But that simply isn't true. There was one moment in particular where Josh said, uh, so it makes sense for the video. Can you say this about harry's involvement or losing some position with a a clerk council now i knew that that was not a story but you want to be polite to the people running it and i said i'm sorry i i don't know that story what i can talk about is harry losing his military titles we knew all about that so that's what i did Anyway, to cut a very long story short, this half hour interview during which I was very positive about the Sussexes, I I don't have any skin in the game when it comes to the royals. I do lean in favor of a monarchy. And I was one of those who voiced uh, my disappointment when Harry and Meghan opted to leave. I think it was a hugely missed opportunity. And I had been excited about what they could bring to the role. Um, So we cut to uh, what they ultimately released uh, that night. And... It was a complete hatchet job. They, they put out a video that was titled, We Prove Royal Experts Lie. And the raw footage will show, and I wish Archie and Josh would release the raw footage in its entirety for obvious reasons they don't want to, because it will illustrate that I did nothing wrong, but they suggested I lied. And this narrative, anything related to Harry and Meghan at the time, just went gangbusters on social media. And the avalanche of hate that came in was extreme. And I know a lot of people in the royal sphere have been subjected to extreme amounts of hate, but I'm not talking a few mean tweets here. It was every name under the sun, Um, but... More upsetting was that my employers were being bombarded with these accusations of me being a liar, uh, a Nazi-supporting white supremacist, uh, an apartheid supporter, Uh, the most slanderous, most inflammatory comments, and it just came and came and came, and it spiraled out of control very, very quickly. And it resulted in me, uh, again, cutting a long story short, losing all of my work, losing my ability to earn a pension, losing my health insurance, which as a resident in the United States is a very scary position to be in. Uh, And I've since spent all of my savings fighting this with lawyers um, because the, the evidence illustrates very clearly that at no point. Did I lie or suggest that I had seen something or do anything wrong? And I think what I really would like to get across is that pre-records, odd as they may seem, they happen on a pretty regular basis. And a perfect example, I think, that really illustrates why I entered this in good faith. Uh, Anybody that follows the royal family, certainly in 2011, know that William and Kate got married on April 29th, 2011. And that year I was working for CBS News and I was based in London. And in February of that year, uh, we did a, a huge documentary. We filmed acres of footage as if the wedding had already happened. You could only talk about the information that we had, but then we referred back to Charles and Diana's wedding, Andrew and Fergie's wedding. And then on the day they they padded it out with with footage that was filmed on the day Um but that was a pre-recorded interview where you're giving as much information as you possibly can so that it was ready to go out. Katie Couric was fronting it. It went out the night of the wedding. And I understood this to be a very similar situation. Uh, And all of the, everything that was sort of in place that made it seem legitimate, their website and their company was registered with Companies House, which is a government agency. I had done all of my research, The, the release all seemed legitimate. Um, unfortunately it wasn't and it's interesting really in hindsight you know i can talk about it now at the time the fear was so paralyzing and, and so distressing to be falsely accused of something i didn't do is that actually the people lying uh were archie and josh they sold the public a false narrative and they exploited the public's knowledge of pre-record practice in order to boost their own numbers the people capitalizing on harry and megan in that instance were Archie and Josh, and in 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 the weeks that followed, as well, you know, it came out that I had been paid a fee to do this, which I I didn't accept. It was returned, but people forget that this is our job, Jack. You know, I I, I wish I could live and survive on air and water, but sadly I cannot. Um, I do do a lot of jobs for free because there are instances where stories have been put out that I would like to correct. I would like to. Uh, Put something on the record that illustrates why the story is correct. So I do do a lot of work for free. Including actually, and this people podcast. always criticising me, including this podcast. Including yes. this podcast. Um, You know there there are there are your NBC people will be surprised to know that the Today Show typically does not pay. Um, so I did not sell my soul for three hundred pounds. I understood that I was there to provide background information, and I was doing my job. For a fee. And this came as well right at the height of the pandemic. Survival jobs were few and far between. There had been very little royal work because, of course, rightly so, news media was very much focused on the pandemic, NHS workers, what was happening all over the world. And America, New York in particular, where I live, was really going through a hellacious time. New York was the epicenter. So I have bills to pay. I had a son in high school that I needed to support. I was taking the work where I could, but I wasn't selling my soul. And I certainly was not promoting a false narrative or lies or adding to hate about Harry and Meghan. As anyone would know who's followed my work, it's just not something I subscribe to. So here we are two and a half years later. uh, Lawyers have been amazing, but the UK justice system is prohibitively expensive. And so I've kind of come to the end of the line in terms of what I can do. And I continue to deal with the consequences.
1: So just to be really clear, you mean you're not now going to sue because it would just be too much of a kind of roulette wheel in terms of the financial cost for you if you did?
2: So lawyers have told me that the evidence is very much on my side. And I think it's quite interesting to note that in the UK, defamation, this was a defamatory exercise, but defamation is a very difficult case to bring in the, in the court system, simply because it costs millions of pounds. It can run millions of pounds. Now, I don't have those kinds of resources. Um, and so we approached this from um while I was slandered, uh, there were a number of elements of fraud that were employed in order to facilitate this. So they used a fake website, fake names, fake production company, fake show name. Uh, they, The way they conducted the interview, they were speaking to a fake crew that didn't exist. All of this was built to give a sense of credibility to it. Uh, so it was very sophisticated what they did. So I wanted to pursue. Um, and actually, Josh, in the beginning, They removed me from the video immediately because they knew that that my case was very strong, but they took a gamble on me not being able to afford to go to court. And, and, you know, the the average person, Jack, can't a post office worker, a school teacher, a doctor. They don't have the means, which is why we see these sort of big names in court. So they took a gamble on knowing that I wouldn't be able to afford to file this in court. I had hoped to settle the matter privately, and I wasn't looking for money. I I would have liked them to reimburse the money that I lost. But for me, an apology was far more important and valuable than any kind of financial sum. And so I had hoped that they would take account for their actions and offer a meaningful, legitimate apology. Now, they did offer to apologize, but their wording was, we apologize that she decided to take part in our
0: video. Well, that's not an apology.
2: (laughs) That's just a backhanded, she did something wrong. But the point is I didn't do anything wrong, Jack, and I am among the first. I, I am a square by nature. I do not like to break the rules. I don't like to be in trouble. But if I am, I have historically always been the first to say I was wrong. I take account for that.
1: And am I right in thinking that you said some quite positive things about um, Harry and Meghan during the uh, interview that weren't included in what was broadcast?
2: Very much so, yes. So I talked about the racism that Meghan had experienced, not just at the hands of the British press. I think the British press gets uh, the majority of the of the blame here, but I think there were articles the world over uh, that had employed unconscious bias or had lent towards a racist approach that was unacceptable. It was couched racism. So I talked about that. I talked about Harry's incredible work on behalf of the armed forces. I think even people who don't particularly care for Prince Harry, cannot deny the extraordinary work he has done on behalf of veterans. He was a very proud serviceman himself. Uh, and I think the work in that sphere speaks for itself. And I also talked about my understanding of why they wanted to go down this route. I did talk about the fact that based on precedence, I didn't think it was a great idea because... Prince Andrew certainly backfired. Diana's interview, Panorama, that backfired. Prince Charles's interview, that backfired. They typically don't go very well when royals decide to put it all out on the table. And so I explained the reasons why, but also expressed my understanding of... Harry and Meghan's desire to just be able to put out some of their side of the story because they hadn't been able to do so beforehand. But no, that that didn't suit the agenda that Archie and Josh had here, so they didn't include any of it.
1: And do you, looking back on it now, can you think of anything you said that you think didn't stand the test of time once the
2: interview itself had aired? No. And I think that's what's very interesting as well, Jack, is that I've been covering the Royals for 12 years. And when you cover them around the clock, as we do, you learn a certain way that things are done, both behind Buckingham Palace walls, Kensington Palace, Clarence House. We knew where this interview was going to go. And I was also incredibly respectful of Oprah Winfrey. She is one of the most prolifically successful journalists, for good reason. But we also knew that she was... A sympathizer to some degree with the Sussexes. She had supported them. She had helped them out with their move. She had uh, supported Megan's uh, financial involvement with the clever brands, the, the coffee, tea. The oatmeal whatever, lattes. So wrong, she but... had an oatmeal yeah, so, latte yeah, yeah. brand.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Exactly. So we, I think we knew as well that Oprah was going to approach this. She was going to have to ask, broader questions because her journalistic integrity was on the line. But we also knew that this was going to be sympathetic towards the Sussexes because she's a friend. Uh, You would expect that. This this wasn't being billed as a hard-hitting Andrew Marr-style interview. This was Oprah Winfrey. So there was going to be a very human element to this as well. So yes, uh, what I offered was based on the promos that we had seen. For example, I, I said in the in my interview with Archie and Josh that Oprah had asked hard questions because she had to. Well, that week we had seen the promo where Oprah Winfrey said in the promo, "Were you silenced or were you silenced?" That is a hard-hitting question because everything that is implied by that question was suggesting that Buckingham Palace has sought had sought to silence Harry and Meghan. So no, nothing. Again, I wish I could publish the raw footage. I'm not allowed to legally. Um, But if I had been able to publish the full half hour raw footage the very next day, I think the response would have been very different.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I suppose with that, what you mentioned about the silent or silenced, there had actually been a, a line from one of Megan's court cases the summer before where she talked about being silenced while pregnant by Kensington Palace press office. So there, we did have a bit of an idea of what that was going to refer to at the time, I seem to recall. Can we talk a little bit more about the reaction from some of your employers, media partners? You were obviously a regular contributor for CNN.
2: Yes, gladly. And I, I'm really grateful to you, actually, for asking about this because it speaks to the lack of loyalty in, in television news in particular um, and the culture that exists, particularly in America, where protecting the brand is everything. Corporate protect, brand protection dominates no matter what. And so the next morning, so this happened on the Friday, didn't sleep a wink, absolutely terrified. I was terrified to my core by what was being sent to me and cnn called me the next morning and they listened to what i had said and they said do not speak to any of the media do not talk to anyone do not present your side of the story so i was like okay i was contracted to cnn and i had been for seven years by that point um i never heard from them again there was no support They did not opt to investigate what had happened. They responded to an online hate mob that was largely sent by people with lots of numbers after their names or with a picture of a puppy or with, you know, not with their real names. Now, that week, I had been offered a new contract by CNN, and I had also been offered a contract by NBC, and it was a very exciting position to be in. I'm not in this because I want any kind of fame or glory, and anyone who's in this industry knows that we are not making megabugs. It's one thing if you're a big-name reporter, but for the most part, we are just jobbing talking heads, just paying our bills. Um, but it was a very exciting t- position to be in after so many years covering the royal family. Now, in an interview that Archie and Josh did with James O'Brien on LBC, which was actually a, a very toxic interview, they said that they had not asked legitimate royal reporters to take part in their ruse, but they had spoken to people that had once written in a cab with Princess Margaret. So clearly they hadn't done their research. And I thought it was incredibly arrogant that they thought they knew more than the people who had employed me. So I didn't just swan in to CNN. Um, Jeff Zucker, who was the big cheese at CNN at the time, had requested me. Anderson Cooper requested me. Don Lemon requested me, based on my previous work. At CBS, I had to meet with Susan Zerinsky, which is one of the most, she was one of the most respected producers and and news uh, people there. Ben Sherwood at ABC had interviewed me. I was requested by Barbara Walters. I was requested by Katie Couric based on the quality of my work. So, yes, I think there are a lot of people now calling themselves who have jumped on a bandwagon, who call themselves royal experts that perhaps don't have the credentials. But I my career had progressed in the way it had because of the quality of my work. So to have Archie and Josh think that they knew better than Andrew Marr, who had asked me on his show, Simon McCoy, the BBC, ITV, CTV Canada, Channel 7, Channel 9 in Australia, I had been working for a number of incredibly well-established journalists who were very well-respected in their sphere. I'm uncomfortable saying this because it goes against all my British tall poppy syndrome. I do not say this to toot my own horn, but simply to illustrate the fact that Archie and Josh clearly hadn't done any research and were just interested in sort of throwing people under the bus uh, to boost their own notoriety. And the only people capitalizing on it because of the number of views they got were Archie and Josh. I think their video to date has had about 1.6 million views. Well, they monetized it. Mm. And they said that they made this video. This is the line that hurt the hardest. They said that they made this video at the expense of the royal experts that they interviewed. And that was such a grotesque statement to me because what they didn't know was at the time, what that expense was. So yes, there were the, there were the bigger things. So I lost my work, I lost my health insurance, you know, all those things that we've covered. But at the time, my best friend was going through treatment for cancer, and, and she died that year. Uh, my son was trying to get through high school on home Zoom classes while also trying to apply for college. And I think anyone who has kids knew how difficult it was trying to get them through the pandemic. Friends had passed away during the pandemic. None of this makes me a victim. It just paints a bigger picture that I had a life that I was just trying to push through during the pandemic as everybody else was. I was just trying to survive as everybody else was. And I appreciate there are people with far bigger problems on paper than I have. I also appreciate that people don't have sympathy for my white woman tears. I am not seeking sympathy. My reason for talking about this is because what Archie and Josh did was wrong and it was cruel. And they have not been held to account. They have been protected by their arrogance, their entitlement. Archie's family is aristocracy. He's the nephew of the Duke of Rutland. And so because I am not a celebrity, people haven't really been interested to pick up on what's happened as a result. So you have people like Jeremy Clarkson, who really did something truly monstrous i i had never seen game of thrones so i didn't get the reference so, just, so i just, read um, what
1: he just to quickly pause so you're talking about the a column that a very famous british columnist jeremy clarkson wrote about Meghan, in which he said that she should be paraded in the street naked while people throw excrement at her um which is obviously quite an extreme thing for um for him to have written so yeah pick up where you left off
2: Yeah, Jack, it was a grotesque thing to write. Now, some people understood the reference. That still doesn't make it right. I had never seen, I still haven't ever seen an episode of Game of Thrones. So I was reading this going, oh my God, like how could you ever wish that on anybody? Now, Jeremy Clarkson is known for his shock journalistic style, but you can have someone like him who actually did something wrong and he was rightly reamed for it, but He hasn't lost anything. He still has all his jobs. He's been given more jobs. And he's one of many, many, many people. Whereas I was in a situation, not a celebrity. So people don't really care because, well, what's the story? Nobody knows who you are. Um, I'm very glad people, for the most part, don't know who I am. Um, But I not only lost all of my work, I'm at a point now where we're two and a half years on and I'm still can't work. And yet I didn't do anything wrong and so that's what i have struggled with with this and to this day you know archie and josh don't want to apologize to me because in order to apologize they'd have to admit what they did and if they admitted what they did that then damages their brand they don't want to do that i get it but i will continue to try and i'm not interested in cancel camp culture i don't want to hurt them i don't want them to lose their income i i don't hate them i hate what they did um They're young. I hope one day they will recognize the incredible distress and damage they caused. People published my home address online. Uh, My son was abused online. People went looking for him. They published a photograph of my house online. Um, It has been terrifying, an absolutely terrifying process.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, now, listen, thank you very much for sharing all of that, Victoria. Um, I'm going to stay with me because we're going to talk about a couple of other things today. Um, we're going to take one quick break. But before we do, a reminder to rate and review The Royal Report on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your favorite shows. And on the subject of Spotify, when we're back, Harry and Megan are no longer podcasters with the streaming giants. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, Prince Harry and Meghan's Spotify podcast deal is over. It was presented as a mutual decision. There was a joint statement saying both sides were proud of the work produced, But any positive spin was soon drowned out by a man called Bill Simmons, who is the company's head of podcast innovation and monetization. And he called the Sussexes effing grifters. He told his own podcast. He once joined a Zoom call with Harry to help him develop a podcast idea and suggested it didn't go well. He said one day he might even get drunk and tell the story publicly, saying it was one of his best. So obviously, this deal was a huge part of the way that Harry and Meghan kind of launched themselves after quitting royal life, uh, moving to America. The first one was the Megabucks Netflix deal, a multi-year deal uh, rumored to be worth anything up to about 100 million pounds. And then Spotify was announced in December 2020. However, it was about 18 months before any content emerged. Um, It was August 2022 when Meghan launched Archetypes. Um, That ran for 12 episodes and now is not being renewed. So, Victoria, what's your take on all this? Do you think Harry and Meghan can come back from this?
2: I think they can come back from it simply because they are such an incredibly valuable brand. Uh, You know, there are some people, it's, it's incredible, isn't it, Jack? We've seen again through the line of work that they are very divisive figures. There are people that absolutely love them and think they hung the moon and the stars. And there are other people who just can't bear them and want them to go away and not be producing content anymore, but they are talked about on such a massive level every single day. Even when there isn't a story to report, someone will generate a story. And so when you have people that are that high profile, people, uh, brands, corporate brands, will continue to throw money at them to try and capitalize on that. And I do feel to some degree that Harry and Meghan have not been given the best advice because I think they have been surrounded. This is very much part of American culture. And I say that with respect. I love America and I love living here. I've had some wonderful opportunities. But I feel that there are people leeching off them to make money for their own benefit. I'm not sure who in all of this has had Harry and Meghan's best interests at heart. Now, the Spotify deal falling apart uh, was surprising to me to some degree, because when Meghan's podcast did come out, it was number one, not just in the US, in a number of countries around the world. And surely that's what you want to achieve as as a streaming giant. But we also know that Spotify has been bleeding money because of mistakes they've made. It wasn't just Harry and Meghan that they threw a gargantuan sum of money at. Joe Rogan is is huge sums of money. They had done a deal with the Obamas previously. So obviously, recently they I think they laid off around two hundred staff members. Obviously, this is a big cost cutting measure, and Harry and Meghan are part of that casualty now. We aren't behind the scenes. I don't know. Were they easy to work with? Were they difficult to work with? Again, it depends who you ask. Perhaps there were creative differences. But I think the fact that Meghan has signed with WME, which is one of the most powerful agencies, uh, brand promoters on the planet, they would not have taken Meghan on if they thought she was dead in the water. So, yes, I think they can come back from this, but it needs to be the right project.
1: And we already have some clue that there could be something new on the the horizon, potentially, because it's going around that um, Meghan could be on the cusp of signing a big deal with Dior, the fashion house. Um, Now, that would be a fantastic way, I suppose, to get back on the horse and put this massive blow behind them.
2: Absolutely. I agree with that. But I wonder, too... I've been thinking about this this weekend, uh, obviously hugely prestigious. You know, we've seen any number of celebrities become the face of a brand, whether it's Nicole Kidman or Jennifer Lawrence, JLo, Halle Berry. I mean, they all do it because it's a nice cash cow and then it enables them to go off and do their passion projects. So I get it. But it's interesting because we've talked about Megan. Not She's talked about not wanting to just be a pretty face, to be recognized for her brain and for her beliefs and the things that she wants to promote in terms of philanthropy. And she talked in one of the podcasts about her struggles with deal or no deal, that she felt like she was just a pretty face. I think in that one, it was the use of the word bimbo um, was being discussed. And so I think Dior certainly would give them a little bit of relief because they've got huge bills to pay. They've said they've got a mortgage to pay. So at least that would put some money in the bank that would perhaps then free her up to do the passion projects that mean more to her. And, you know, Dior is a big step up from deal or no deal. Uh, it's a very prestigious <laughs> fashion house. Um, so I can see why she would want to be affiliated with that. Of course, it remains to be seen if the speculation is true, but I I can see why she would want to do it just to have the financial security Um, because, of course, we don't know where things stand with Netflix. Is that going to be the next thing that falls by the wayside?
1: This is another rumour that's going around, and I need to stress rumour. It's not anything that's been confirmed, but um, Netflix, it has been suggested, may not renew the contract when it reaches its natural conclusion. So uh, this is absolutely not a suggestion that it's being axed or cancelled but just that they will let it run its course and when it does not renew it, feeling that they've got as much money as they can out of this deal. Which, you know, it would force a reset because, like you say, it's one thing to take on a deal with Dior, but you do also need to have other stuff going on because you need to wear the clothes somewhere. You need to be appearing at events. You need to be doing stuff. Uh, Ideally, you know, you need to be going either to royal events, which Megan clearly doesn't want to do, or you need to be going to awards galas. You need to be on the red carpet. You need to be Mm -hmm. doing this other stuff. And in order to be doing this other stuff, you have to have other stuff going on. But it has been suggested by their camp, by the Sussex camp, that um, they may simply try and move Archetypes in some form to another platform. So obviously the Obama, you mentioned the Obamas earlier, they jumped ship to Amazon. So it could be that Megan tries to do that, and perhaps she—I I don't know whether she might have to lose, you know, change the name. I mean, Archetypes was a very was a name that was rooted very firmly in the specific. Concept of that podcast, you know, it was the archetypes that hold women back. You know, the slurs, the names you mentioned, bimbo, that hold women back. So I could see her maybe changing the name, changing the concept and the format just a little bit, if anything, maybe just to free her, um, uh, to kind of you know do something slightly different with it. It felt like I don't know if you spotted this as well, but it felt like as it got to the end of the series, she did that she was starting to get slightly tired of the concept. Yeah. yeah, you may remember she did like a couple, I think, that didn't have an actual word at the centre of them.
2: I think it would be good to make the switch because also what some people were responding to, perhaps they weren't listening to the whole thing. You know, they'll read the, they read the headline or they read the newspaper article. And, and this is an epidemic. You know, People don't read the article. They don't educate themselves on what's actually being said. But uh, what a lot of the newspaper reports were saying was that Meghan was implying that each of these archetypes she had been called, which is entirely possible we know uh, in my video Archie said that his maternal grandmother thought Megan was a B-I-T-C-H. so one that was one of the archetypes so yes but unfortunately, the knock-on effect of that when you come from a position of immense privilege is people started saying that, oh, she's a victim again. She's portraying herself as a victim again. I think, and and this is coming from a very ignorant background, I am not a brand expert, but I think that the TIG was so successful for her. So I would love to see her branch out into a podcast where she could be delivering really great tips that real women can use. You know, it's wonderful to see those images of Megan on the beach in various yoga poses, living her best life. But how how can you take what her experience is and apply that to regular women in real jobs that are juggling full-time work, plus two children, plus trying to run their home, you know, whatever it is. I think there's a lot of room for that. I think the TIG was incredibly popular. Then you can build in brand support with other brands, and I think Gwyneth Paltrow has achieved immense success, certainly with Goop. If that were the model for it, Uh, because I think Megan has a built-in audience that Gwyneth wouldn't, where there is an African American female community who does does not feel like they have been represented. You know, Oprah's done huge amounts, but. Megan is someone they can identify with. And I think it is a group that has not been at the forefront of society in terms of programming or tips or podcasts that are directed to them. And I think Megan could really bring something to the table with that. So yes, I can see her absolutely getting a home somewhere else. I think people would be mad not to because she does draw in the figures, whether or not people like their content, she draws the figures. So it would be a good idea, I think, to turn it into something that is positive and life-affirming and optimistic and really speaks to women from every different background.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worth saying that I was actually kind of sad that they lost the Spotify podcast. I mean, some people love Harry and Meghan, some people hate Harry and Meghan. And at Newsweek, we do believe in debates being legitimate. So we do believe that everybody has the right to their perspective. But Needless to say, they could easily have gone on to make some great content. And it is always sad to see people, you know, real human beings fail.
2: I'm so glad you raised this, Jack, because I think this is a really sad reflection of where we are, particularly in the royal sphere at the moment, because we have such extreme camps. So I think you're absolutely right, whether it is people... Debating the state of the marriages between the Sussexes or the Waleses, people are—it's almost like people turning up to a gladiator re- arena and they're kind of fropping at the mouth, waiting for people to fail, waiting for one marriage to fall apart or the other marriage to fall apart, or waiting for them to lose all their deals. And and it works in both camps, you know, people were kind of celebrating and quite joyous that they had lost this Spotify deal. And then at the other end of the spectrum, people are wanting Prince William's Earthshot Prize to fail. And I don't understand why we're at that point in society. Now, of course, failure sells newspapers as the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. But should we not be celebrating each other's wins? And and if you don't like the podcast, then don't listen to it. It's really quite simple but if you listen to it and you think it can help you well then great um i think it's a it's a really sad place that we seem to be in right now and i think what's been particularly difficult for harry and megan was when they arrived in california or north america of course they started in canada I think they had the world at their feet. I think there were people, brands the world over ready to throw money at them, ready to really capitalize on what they had to offer. But then the pandemic came along and everything shifted dramatically when suddenly you've got people that can't feed their families that are losing family members that they couldn't say goodbye to in hospital they can't pay for their health coverage they've lost their jobs people are suffering so much and so where harry and megan i think had particularly in the us a huge number of people on side following the oprah interview when the story sort of kept coming and kept coming It became harder to generate sympathy because while their problems are very relative to them, anyone's problems are relative to them, it's difficult to maintain a sense of sympathy when they're living how they're living, people are throwing money at them, throwing opportunity at them, and yet there's somebody in another state who is just trying to keep a roof over their heads. And that's why I'm hoping that they'll use this next chapter, whatever it is. I'm very, very glad that you reiterated that the Netflix story at the moment, it's just a rumor. It is not more than that. But whatever comes next for them, I really hope it becomes forward thinking about, now we've got this phenomenal platform. I mean, people dream of a platform like the one that they had. What kind of positive difference can they make with it and move beyond their own learned experiences. The, the, the tragedy and the difficulties they've suffered can certainly inform their approach. But then how do you turn it around and, I don't know, make lemonade out of lemons?
1: Yeah, indeed. And on that note, I'm going to take one more quick break. But before I do, just a reminder to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. And when I'm back, King Charles has had his first Trooping the Colour as monarch. Hi, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Now, King Charles has notched up another first this week at the first Trooping of the Colour since he became King. And it was the first time a monarch has ridden on horseback continuously during Trooping since 1986, when Harry was two years old and Princess Diana was still very much a working royal. And of course, Prince Louis stole the show as he always does these days by saluting the crowd off the Buckingham Palace balcony. And there was this fantastic picture of him kind of with his fists clenched in a sort of almost like a Superman pose. Did you see that one, Victoria?
2: Oh, he's just delicious, isn't he? He is such good value for money. Uh, There's so much personality and I don't know, third child syndrome, you know, is the baby of the family gets away with so much. and. But I think you see each, their personalities are so defined. It comes down to this nurture nature thing, doesn't it? Because, George has always seemed like quite a serious baby. You remember those images when they first arrived in Australia, and he had that very funny scowl on his face, and uh, he he inspired so many memes. And Charlotte is very much the sensible sister, and she's keeping her brothers under control. You know, when she's telling Louis not to clap so much. But uh, Louis is the court jester. Jester. He is the comedian, and and I think. There's a wonderful relationship that clearly exists between these three children. You can see how they mutually respect each other. But I expect Louis keeps them in stitches at home. He's an absolute delight.
1: It's wonderful to see expressive children, isn't it? I mean, there is nothing that he experiences that he doesn't express, and that—that's in some ways it's fantastic, you know, because you really know then what's going on in a child's world. Um, my son can be quite expressive as well. And, uh, you know, there's been times when Lou's been on the balcony and he's been kind of like trying to shush Kate or whatever, but that like, that is part and parcel of an expressive child. They will express everything. You cannot ask a child to express only the good things. If they're If they're an expressive child, they will express both good and bad. And, you know, I think the country has fallen in love with him.
2: And I'm glad we've moved beyond this children should be seen and not heard yes. mentality. That's a sort of very Victorian era. And you only have, you know, it doesn't take much to Google images of William and Harry on the balcony at Buckingham Palace. or But, you know, if Harry's not sticking his tongue out at yes. someone William was saluting. I mean, they were up to the same kind of antics. They're children in a very... Uh, Extreme situation. But I think what has been really quite remarkable with the Wales is with their, they've been, they've benefited tremendously from the fact that for so many years, William was second in line to the throne. So he didn't have the same pressure on him that Charles had as Prince of Wales when his own children were born. And so it means that I think they've been able to put so much focus on these children and, and introduce them very slowly to what's going to be expected of them, build their confidence. And so they there's the potential for them to be the most well-adjusted generation of children the royal family has ever known, certainly in modern years, because they've been allowed to get used to it in a safe way environment but yeah it's it humanizes them too because it's very easy to make members of the royal family quite two-dimensional figures Mm. but when we see louis interacting the way he was and it was a very sweet moment too when charlotte pulled dad's arms around her and she was holding onto his fingers yeah that speaks to a a lovely relationship that exists so yeah i'm with you it's it's just great to see the children in action
1: and how did it feel for you to have a trooping the color without the queen
2: It was poignant. Certainly it was moving. And I I think for the king, it would have been bittersweet in many respects because he did, as we know, he did take the salute on behalf of the queen last year. Her mobility issues meant that she wasn't able to travel to horse guards parade. She did, of course, appear on the balcony. But at the time, they obviously all knew that she was quite poorly. We didn't uh, appreciate the extent of it at the time. So perhaps they knew that that was likely to be her last troop in the colour. But it's quite something when you're the longest serving heir apparent in British history, and then suddenly you do embrace the job for which you were destined. And your front and center of all of it so i think on the one hand he'll have appreciated the huge turnout i think it was a lovely touch that it was the welsh guards trooping their color because he had been colonel of the welsh guards for so many years um and i think it went off without a hitch and of course i was delighted that the flycast could go ahead you know obviously that had been rained out for the coronation so that was very special too
1: now just one final thought victoria obviously imagining that this whole Spotify uh, issue hadn't blown up at the exact time that Trooping was happening, Uh, leaving that to one side, would you have liked to have seen Harry and Meghan make the journey over to Britain and and come to Trooping?
2: Gosh, uh, yes, I would. And here's why. Um, I am an optimist at heart, Jack, but I also appreciate, as I think most people do, the importance of family. Uh, Family is everything. It's all we have at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if you're a royal or just an average Joe on the street. Family is everything. I would have liked to have seen them there because had they been there, it would speak to the fact that there was a thawing of relations. The fact that they weren't there, even not even, I don't mean just on the balcony, the fact that they weren't even in the UK for it speaks to the fact that things are as bad as they've ever been And I just think that's heartbreaking. I think mistakes have been made by all camps. People are very quick to point fingers, but I think everybody messed up spectacularly here. But the only way they're going to be able to move forward is for everyone to own their role and to get in a room and hash it out. Now we know the Windsor men in particular, and I'm talking all the Windsor men, Prince Philip, Prince Charles, King Charles, but Prince Charles as he was, they are all stubborn by nature. Uh, They don't like to be wrong. Um, And so we're going to need more time, clearly. But I think what is going to be difficult in order for this family to heal, they need to be in the same country. They need to be in the same room. This is not something you can hash out over FaceTime. There is clearly an awful lot of distress and there are some massive trust issues here. And I think it's going to be difficult as well to try and heal all this angst and drama and upset because nobody trusts each other at the moment uh so i'm hoping time is a great healer that perhaps everybody just needs this extended period of time harry and megan will need to stop talking about the royal family uh certainly and there's going to need to be apologies from all camps uh but at the same time gosh i wouldn't even know where to begin on, on trying to facilitate that there has to be a desire to do it And I don't think the desire is there right now. The king is probably the one who would most like to see Harry and Meghan return to the fold because it's his son, you know, and as an elderly man, he's 74, he'll be 75 in November to not be seeing his grandchildren, to not be seeing his son must be devastating. And I worry for Harry in particular one day with the benefit of hindsight will he look back and regret all this time lost? Because even he has talked in the past about the joyful relationship he shared with his cousins, those summers up at Balmoral where they were all free. There were no cameras. They were free to go and build forts and ride their ponies and go fishing and splash in the river. And the Queen talked about in a documentary in 1992 about how precious that time was, that off-duty time. And Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet are not experiencing that. And I think that's very sad too. They've got a wonderful grandmother figure in Doria, and it's lovely that she's present in their lives, but that's the only family member they have access to. Um, And I think that's very sad. But my goodness, there's a lot that they're going to have to sort out before they're able to even come back. I think, I don't know that Megan ever, certainly at the moment, would even want to set foot in the UK.
1: No, indeed, I think you're right. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me. And that is it for this week's episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a courtesy to you all.